Hey there, friends! I'm Eric. I'm Sean, and I'm also your friend. That's true, and we're the Verta guys, is the important part, and we're here to check out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. The determination of those three as the big three has been made arbitrarily by us. I don't know what you're <laughs> queuing me up for. <laughs> I don't know, I just said it. Today, we're looking at Preacher issues five through seven. These issues are, as usual, written by Garth Ennis, with pencils by Steve Dillon and covers by Glenn Fabry. That is right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is that an angel and a demon boned, and it made a thing called Genesis, which came down from heaven and got into the head of Jesse Custer. It also fucked up most of his Texas town, and what it didn't do, the saint of killers that was sent by the angels to recover it did. And Genesis gives Jesse the power of the word of God, allowing him to compel anyone to do anything he wants, as long as they can hear and understand his voice. Yeah. He's just left West Texas with his gun-toting ex-girlfriend, Tulip O'Hare. Oh, Cassidy's a vampire. And his Irish vampire, Cassidy, he is looking for God to hold him responsible for abandoning creation. They're being hunted not only by the Saint of Killers, they're also fugitives from the FBI. Right. And Tulip and Jesse are also being hunted by each other. And, regular, <laughs> and regularly interrogated by each other with questions that neither wants to answer. Yeah, as we're going to see... Yeah, they do sort of beat that plot note to death in this arc that we're about to that we're about to read. But but hey, it's fun. So preacher number five, say a prayer for seven bullets. Preacher number five, guy holding up a face. Oh yeah, so this is the one cover that I've seen so far that I was really like, they can put that on the cover because it is a fist holding up the removed face of a man with blonde hair and mustache. Yeah, I mean, I guess it might just look like a uh you might not be able to tell that it's a removed face and so maybe that's why they can get away with it mm. it might just look like a freaky looking dude but a great many preacher covers are extreme close-ups on people's faces so this is kind of a dark parody of their normal format yeah a series of fantastic covers by glenn fabry was done for this series and this is not the most attractive one we'll see <laughs> but uh but it does it does fit with his general rubric. We open on the skyline of New York City, and as we zoom into a porn store, an unseen voice orders a copy of Anal Rampage. Yeah, and is that Bridges that we see in the second panel going in to buy this porn? You know, it could be. I was never clear on who this person was supposed to be. Yeah, because over the course of this story arc, we'll find out that at least two characters have copies of Anal Rampage on their bookshelf. And then we cut away to something completely different. An overweight black cop in a gray suit, huffing and puffing as he chases a suspect into an alley. Right. This is John Toole, the unluckiest cop in the world, and he is trying to arrest two armed crooks. He bursts around the corner holding his gun on the suspect and ordering him to drop it. Unfortunately, John has already run out of bullets. Hence the title of this issue. <laughs> right, which brings us to the title page, Say a Prayer for Seven Bullets. This has got to be some kind of record. I think we've said the title of this issue like five times <laughs> already love, in this I, episode. I love that title, even though it's not really a title of this story arc or this issue. It's a title of this moment. <laughs> right. The suspect has got his gun on tool, but suddenly he is shot in the face. 
Yeah, shot non-lethally in the face, which is quite a trick. This is actually the second time in five issues that somebody is shot in the face, blowing their jaw off, and lives through it. We're about to get a conversation about the other time. <laughs> yeah, I guess it looks more like he gets his nose shot off. Mm, fair enough. But in any case, this is John Toole's super cop partner, Polly Bridges. There's another guy here on a fire escape, and Bridges says, Off the fire escape, fucko. <laughs> I love fucko. <laughs> he uses fucko a lot, yeah. That's just such a good cuss word. He arrests the suspect with obvious brutality, shoving his gun in his mouth and telling him, When you get to Rikers, you're going to find a lot of dick on the goddamn menu. <laughs> yeah, he police brutalities these two guys real good. <laughs> Tool actually calls him out a little bit on the brutality, and so Bridges calls Tool a pussy. Yeah, Bridges is super offensive, and that's how you know he's super effective at his job. Right. So, without meeting the main characters of this comic book, we get another cutaway, this time to an apartment, where someone is waking up to find themselves tied to a chair. Yeah, there's a ruthless, sadistic killer showing a guy his own face. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, he says. I'll put it back on, and he reaches for a hammer and nails. Yeah... Lovely fellow. The end of that pretty disturbing interlude brings us at last to our heroes. Jesse, Cassidy, and Tulip. They're in a bar, and Cassidy and Tulip are both telling Jesse, hey, we're probably wanted by the police, and we probably left a pretty easy trail to follow. Yeah, in between Cassidy and Tulip kind of bantering with each other, he calls her turnip. Mm. They encourage Jesse to be more careful, but he just doesn't seem concerned. He's just really glad to be out of Texas, the sentiment with which Tulip agrees. Jesse asks if that's because of what happened in Dallas, and once again, Tulip isn't talking until Jesse admits why he walked out on her five years ago. Yeah, although I think we get a couple more details here. Yeah, she says that she was left high and dry in Phoenix, and he says, high and dry? You had the goddamn money! To which she replies, 27 bucks! <laughs> yeah, so we're getting, you know, sketchy new information on what went down between them, but still no real answers. Speaking of real answers, the three are here to meet a friend of Cassidy's, a freelance writer with an interest in weird shit. Right, and because of his interest in the paranormal, Cassidy thinks he might be able to help their quest. Right, they think that tabloid tales are exactly the kind of thing they need to track down God. Right. Now, Jesse doesn't want this guy to know that he's the one asking. So Cassidy's going to pretend, at least at first, like it's on his own behalf. Right, yeah. He doesn't want him to know that Jesse is a weird religious thing. <laughs> so, just on cue, Cy, the reporter, Cy Coltrane, enters and... We see that he is just as much of a son of a bitch as Cassidy. They greet each other with some sort of friendly masculine vulgarity. <laughs> Motherfucker! <laughs> yeah, I, I love that these two are supposed to be close pals, but we never see them say a nice word to each other. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> it's always just like, like, Sile walk into a room and say to Jesse, Hey Jesse, hey fuckstick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure if Sai is supposed to have some kind of accent. I interpreted him as being a British expat, but I'm not going to try to do that. For the benefit of our podcast. Wow, you know, I didn't even... I didn't get that impression at all. 
So he apologizes when he sees Jesse's collar, but Jesse says that swearing ain't any kind of sin in my book. Cy tells him he's living the dream of the world-weary reporter, his fridge stuffed with so much half-eaten garbage he can't even reach the beer. Now don't make that face, we haven't got to it yet. (laughs) Anyway... So yeah, so after describing his life as a, as a newsman, he starts telling them about the local serial killer who's on the loose, the Reaver Cleaver. The Reaver Cleaver has apparently started recently to kidnap people and send their body parts back to their families. Yeah, and the reason he has a silly name is that two different news outlets both tried to name him and neither one would back off. That was pretty funny. <laughs> so he's, he's the Reaver Cleaver. Yeah, and speaking of the news, by incredible coincidence, the detectives Tool and Bridges, the Reaver Cleaver Task Force, are on TV at this moment. That's a possible improbability. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, so Psy also gives us and the heroes a little lowdown on Tool and Bridges. Right, he knows Bridges by his sterling reputation as a super cop. And we learn that apparently the killer hasn't hit anybody important enough to send more than two cops. Right. No yuppies yet, so the police aren't taking it real seriously. They eventually leave the bar, and once again, Jesse and Tulip start to interrogate each other. And Jesse basically says his explanation is coming when when the moment is right. Right. It has to do with shit I don't like to talk about. She also thinks that he's trusting Cassidy awfully quick. You and Cass got awfully friendly awful quick, didn't you? Well, sure. We got the same sense of humor. Yep, childish and sick. (laughs) Right. They've quickly become... I don't know how to put it. Best bros? (laughs) They've quickly become a hyper-masculine guy friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's, That's as good an explanation as any. And then Tulip goes on to uh, tease Jesse about not having gotten her into bed yet. Yeah, that's right. She says they should check out of the single rooms and get a double instead. They got some catching up to do. And Jesse says, yeah? And she says, in your dreams. <laughs> right. Sai takes off, promising to do the internet searches that Jesse needs. Or I guess that he believes that Cassidy needs at this point. Yeah, as we discussed in our episode last week... This was published a little bit later than that Hellblazer issue. But nonetheless, basically anyone who knows how to do an internet search is a hacker. And it's treated as a very unique skill. Oh, I, I definitely thought of this as a one of those culture marches on situations. Because literally, they hire a guy to do internet searches for them. And when they go to do that, Jesse has to have what the internet is explained to him. <laughs> There's a part where they explain to him what the internet is? Not in a lot of detail, but literally, he says... Uh, internet? (laughs) And Cassidy, oh, I see. They don't really give him much of an explanation, but Cassidy is just like, yeah, the internet. (laughs) Sai is a whiz kid, so he knows how to use it. Yeah, maybe I'm reading that wrong. But Uh, in any case, so Sai leaves to do his very sophisticated research. Tulip also decides to turn in, leaving Cass and Jessidy. Cass and Jessidy? (laughs) Jessidy Custer. Jessidy Custard, Pudding King. Um, <laughs> right, and Jesse asks, at this point, asks Cassidy to take him to the Empire State Building. Yeah, Cassidy offers to show him around, and Jesse wants to go straight to the Empire State Building, to which Cass says, Fucking tourist! 
<laughs> right, even though we will find out that the Empire State Building is also very important to Cassidy. Right. It's an interesting character note that, as tough and whirly as he puts on, Jesse is also still kind of a country boy, still basically goes straight to the tourist traps when he gets to a big fancy city like New York. Yeah, I, I really like his wide-eyed enjoyment of New York City that we get throughout this issue. It really humanizes him, and we're able to enjoy Preacher's trip to New York through his eyes. Agreed. We cut away to a police precinct where Tool and Bridges are interrogating the guys they've caught. They're not really interested in him. We've got business with a whole different class of sociopath, Tool says. They're just trying to book the guy, but he's not talking. Yeah, Tool can't get any respect from this dude, but Bridges does know how to do so. By slamming the guy's face into the copy machine and making a number of images. <laughs> 99, to be specific. I thought you and I had already settled the roles in the fucker-fucky relationship, he says. Yeah, uh, he also uses a racial slur on the guy, so we return to this theme that um, part of what makes Bridges a super cop is that he's incredibly offensive. Yeah, well, it seems like Eugene Root was more effective than most of the cops that we encountered in the last arc. And he was a foaming-at-the-mouth bigot. Yeah. Well, the guy says that he wants to kapara, and he kaparas, spilling the name of his dealer. Yeah, meanwhile, Tool overhears the other cops telling stories about how great Bridges is, and he feels useless by comparison. One time, Bridges shoved a perp's face into a shotgun wound in a dying cop. And then they describe Tool with an unpleasant epithet for a homosexual. Yeah. <laughs> I guess... These cops are of medium-level competence, which means they're somewhat offensive. Yeah, well, there's definitely a, a hyper-masculine culture in this precinct environment, and Tool's ineffectiveness as a cop is associated with a lack of masculinity. Well, yeah, and the lack of offensiveness. He doesn't usually swear. This is true. As we will find out at one point. And, you know, so these guys all have ridiculously foul mouths. And he doesn't swear, and they're good cops, and he's a bad cop, so... Right. Not a bad cop, like, good cop, bad cop, but he just, he just isn't very good. At right, he's, he's a poor officer. Right. He's just a poor quality officer. <laughs> so, up on the Empire State Building, Cassidy basically is asking Jesse why he doesn't use the word of God more. That's Jesse's ability to make people do as he says. Yeah, Jesse has uh, bought himself a Budweiser. It's the only beer that they had. And Cassidy points out he could order them to go buy him something better, or for that matter, leave their motel and demand rooms at the Ritz-Carlton. So why didn't you? And the answer is, because with great power comes great responsibility. Comes down to responsibility. I'm looking for the Lord because I figure he's deserted his creation. I am to bring him to book for that little transgression, to confront him and hear his answer to that charge. He has an obligation to do right by the world he's made and the folks he's peopled it with. He quits and runs. He ain't facing up to his responsibilities. Figure if I start lording it over people with this gift I got, just to make life a little bit easier, who am I going to be to talk about responsibility? You got power. You got to use it right. Yeah, so this is basically Garth Ennis laying out for us that despite this superpower that he has, Jesse is not going to be a complete sociopath with it. Yeah, I really like this scene. I really like the philosophy that it sets Jesse up with. And it really marks him as not just not just a tough guy who can handle the problems that the book's going to throw at him, but genuinely a good guy. Yeah, it occurs to me that he has basically the same power as the Purple Man. 
Mm-hmm. But instead of being, you know, a completely terrifying psycho, <laughs> Jesse manages to be a pretty good guy. And that's because he uses it only when he needs to. Yeah, that said, we're going to come to points in the series where Jesse uses his power a little less sparingly than we're seeing him do here. And watch for the moment when his philosophy seems to shift a little bit. Cassidy asks Jesse if he thinks the people of the world are worth his time and effort. Matter of fact, Cass, yes I do. So he's also a little bit of an optimist. Yeah, so so at this point Cassidy brings up Tulip. And the fact that Jesse isn't sleeping with her. Yeah. I don't think Cassidy is intending to ask, like, why don't you just use the word of God to order her into bed? That's really creepy and gross if that's what he's if that's what he is asking. Well, he doesn't actually suggest that Jesse should use the word, but he does suggest that Jesse's philosophy of responsibility is why he and Tulip are still sleeping separately. Well, whether that's the question he means to ask or not, Jesse does kind of answer it. He says, Ordering Tulip to commit a carnal act against her will would be an unforgivable sin for which I would rightly burn forever in the fires of hell. Right. Now, I don't know what comes to happen in this series, but this line reads like foreshadowing to me. Like, the absolute last line that Jesse can cross in this series is to use the word on Tulip. Jesse goes on to admire the skyline. He says it gives him a feeling like he could do anything. And that's the feeling Cassidy had the first time he was here, too. The night they opened the building. Right. (laughs) Jesse asks, how old are you? And he says, same age as the century, mate. Which I think is a really cool concept. Yeah. Cassidy goes on to explain a little bit more about his vampiric powers. He's got perfect vision, superhuman sense of smell, super speed, and super strength. And then he shows off by climbing up the fence, shouting a melodramatic suicide note, and jumping off the building. (laughs) To which Jesse says, Cock. Sucker. (laughs) We see, however, that Cassidy has not gone through with falling off the Empire State Building. He catches himself a few feet down, fingers digging into the concrete. (laughs) Fooled you. (laughs) Before we leave this scene, I do want to point out... One more thing that that dates the comic, unfortunately. When they look out at the New York City skyline, the Twin Towers are prominently displayed. Oh, yeah, there they are. Finally, one last thing in this issue. We see Bridges is in his apartment, and he has gotten a voicemail message asking, Hello, Detective Bridges. Do you want to do it again? Bridges drops his drink, falls to his knees, and buries his head in his hands. So, he has some kind of a secret. Yeah. Incidentally, he has an answering machine, which is yet another dated element. Nowadays, you know, everybody's answering machine is their cell phone. Although, I can imagine you could still do this sequence, because he wouldn't necessarily want his mysterious contact to have his cell phone number. Right. Well, everybody's answering machine is their cell phone, but most people don't even use voicemail anymore. They just text. Right, right. When I first read this, I assumed that the voice on the other end of the line was the killer. The killer was calling to taunt him, sort of catch-me-if-you-can style, or that Bridges was involved in the murders. Right, and that's one of the things that comic books can do that other media can't, which is that this voice, you know, we see a speech bubble, but we don't know anything about it. So they can make it read as if this is the killer on his answering machine and then walk that back later without actually contradicting themselves. Right. This brings us to Preacher issue number six, New York's Finest. 
And I really love the cover to this issue, mostly for the fact that Cassidy is wearing a Batman logo on his t-shirt. <laughs> right. We've got Cassidy and Jesse standing over a mook that they have knocked out on a pool table. And Cassidy's got a <clears throat> bottle in his hand, and he's wearing a Batman t-shirt with a vest over it. And it just sort of shows you the sort of iconoclastic nature of this comic book. You know, these are sort of envelope-pushing covers that let you know this is a, a sort of demented adult comic book. Right. You yeah. know, you've got Jesse in a preacher's outfit doing bad things, and you've got Cassidy with a with a Batman logo on his chest <laughs> whilst taking a swig from a bottle. Yeah, it's also just a really dynamic cover for a scene, which is the two of them having a conversation. Yeah, that's true. So... We pick up, just like the cover, page one features a dude sprawled across a pool table. Yeah, Cassidy notes that Jesse is keeping a tab of all the beer that they drink while they're in this bar, planning to pay for it despite the fact that Jesse knocked out the barkeep. Making me the one responsible for him. (laughs) Right. Besides which, Jesse says, I didn't hit the son of a bitch so we could steal his beer. I hit him because he called me a redneck motherfucker. Gotta be a more polite way to ask a fella to drink up and close in time, ain't there? And since Jesse still doesn't have any money, Cassidy's the one who ends up having to pay the tab. Right. So, this conversation... Jesse is basically trying to grill Cassidy for whatever he knows about what Tulip won't tell him. What Tulip was doing in Dallas. Yeah, Cassidy swears he doesn't know anything. And Jesse, in the next couple of pages, is gonna get a chance to, uh... Basically spy on her even more because Tulip in the hotel room is having a phone conversation with someone. With her mob boss employer, McAvoy. Yeah, and this conversation, I think the writing does a good job of really giving us a a good impression of what her relationship is like with McAvoy. It's like she's sort of half afraid of him, but also quite familiar towards him. Right. She apologizes for disappearing, but she refuses to tell him where she is. Even though she seems concerned that he might send someone after her, she's also not showing much particular deference to him. Yeah. In the end, she figures, well, it's a big city. Let's see you try and find me. Right. She is shocked to learn that the guy she shot is still alive, and now her boss wants her to come back and finish the job. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jesse's standing in the hallway when the housekeeper walks by and says, Excuse. Giving him away... And Tulip silently approaches the door and swings it open, and he falls on his face into the hotel room. Right. She kind of cleverly pretends to be still on the phone when she's not, so that she can throw the door open with him not ready for it. She is pretty pissed at him for spying, and he's equally pissed that she seems to be a hit woman. What the fuck are you, some kind of contract killer? He then immediately cedes the moral high ground by making it about sex. Oh, right, he tries to turn this into her wanting to sleep with him, which is pretty nonsensical. And she says, I'd sooner fuck Cassidy. Which is also nonsensical. He answers, hurts, but I'll be sure to tell him. She reiterates once again that she wants to know why he left her five years ago, but he doesn't buy curiosity as the reason she's sticking around. He's curious about the Dallas thing, he says, but he's being open about what he's really after. Trying to sleep with her. Yeah. So, we've seen them go through this dance many times now. And I just have to reassure our listeners that answers are coming. Yeah. It is actually the very next story arc, and not a moment too soon. 
We also get a brief appearance by the Duke, who uh, says, Nearly there, Pilgrim, to encourage Jesse. I guess he's not just Jesse's partner, he's also his wingman. <laughs> and then we cut back to Detectives Tool and Bridges, Detective Tool narrating. He explains that he went on a date once to a place that didn't mind her seeing iDog. Yeah, this is more of Tool's terrible luck. The idea that the fact that he went on a date with a blind woman is is treated as, you know, a hilarious indication of his bad luck is kind of unfortunate. Yeah, I think that's a good point, although I read it more as being she had to be blind to be going on a date with John Tool. Oh, I see. Well, that's that's a little less offensive, I guess. That sort of at least puts the onus on Tool. It, it makes him the butt of the joke, not her. Yeah. Well, I, I think that he's he's treated as the butt of the joke in my reading of it as well, but it's for, like, dating an undesirable woman, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of not cool. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. But in any case, it turns out that his conversation with this woman, he revealed where his partner lives, and she immediately jumped to the conclusion that his partner was gay, based on the street that he lives on. Right. He ends up telling her Polly Bridges stories because that's the most interesting thing going on in his life. And she laughs when she learns that Bridges lives on Christopher Street. There's sort of an implication to that street. Yeah, and Tool laughs so hard when he finds out that she thinks Polly is gay that he chokes on a crouton. (laughs) Right. So, in fact, Polly is a raging homophobe. Yeah, Polly is aware of the implication, too. He says that his street is full of offensive epithets for homosexual men, and they auto-organize a cull. Yeah, that's not a chill thing to say, Polly. No, it's not. Another inhabitant of Christopher Street, who is watching as the detectives drive off, is Cassidy's reporter friend, Cy Coltrane. Is he an inhabitant of Christopher Street, or is he just following them? You know, that's a good question. I assumed that he lived nearby, but this is to establish that Cy is tailing the detectives. Well, we hear his address later on. Oh, you're right. In the issue. Yeah, you're right. I don't think he lives there. My mistake. In any case, yeah. Cy is watching the detectives. He is an inhabitant, I suppose, in the most basic term. <laughs> and Polly has some serious rage issues. Yeah. They're off to investigate the Reaver Cleaver. Apparently, he killed a yuppie. Maybe now we'll rate some backup. Yeah, and on their way up to the crime scene, Polly gets a clear come on from a female uniformed officer and completely blows it off. Yeah, he says he's busy and pushes her on to John Toole, which he doesn't get at all. The victim's wife is sort of thrilled to see the detectives. She recognizes them from TV. She looks sort of like a more distraught tulip. You know, Steve Dillon is normally very good at drawing characters so that they look different, but... Just about the only thing that makes this character look different from Tulip is that she's more, like, disheveled and out of sorts. Yeah, especially in the bottom right-hand panel on this page. Well, it doesn't help that we don't get very much of a look at her in, in any case. She's only drawn about three times. Yeah, she's kind of being played as a as a punchline here as she has this massive overreaction to seeing the detectives. And it's not really clear whether she's more upset at her husband having been kidnapped or delighted to see people that she recognizes from tv yeah i guess the colorist does give her a slightly different hair color mm-hmm. than than tulip but yeah in any case the scene ends with she's been sent a package in the mail and 
Bridges asks her the grim laugh line, is this your husband's scrotum? Right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of implied here to me that she hadn't seen what's in the bag, and Bridges sort of shows it to her as a way of shutting her up. Kind of being an unnecessary jerk about it, but that's him. That's what, again, he's really offensive, which makes him a great cop. Right. <laughs> so we now cut to Jesse and Tulip. Jesse is looking up at the buildings, and Tulip is protesting that it's a damn good way to get mugged. Right. Once again, Jesse is enamored with the Big Apple, and he's just walking around staring at the skyscrapers. He suggests that if they do get mugged, he can use the word on them. Then he sort of remembers his responsibility to his fellow man. Yeah, and Tulip points out, not a good idea. Remember Root? And this is where we find out definitively that Jesse was not expecting Root to interpret the command, go fuck yourself, the way he did. Right. And yet again, Jesse and Tulip sort of fail to talk about anything except what they refuse to talk about. Well, he, he brings up responsibility, and she thinks the responsible thing to do would be to spill his story. He says that they'll tell all when they're ready, but that's not any good reason to not start screwing again. Which actually gets a smile from her. Yeah, she she grins and calls him a bastard. This brings us back to the detectives, back to the precinct. Tool is having his lunch when he gets a call from someone claiming to be the killer. Yeah, he asks for a trace and continues to get no respect. Right. He asks for a trace and they... The next detective over says, How the fuck can I? Your phone isn't hooked up. And don't fucking shout at me, tool! (laughs) The killer confirms who they are by releasing details that have not been released in the press. If you can't laugh at severed testicles in the mail, what can you laugh at? And hangs up before they can respond to the call in any meaningful way. Right. Jesse and Tulip, meanwhile, arrive at Sai's place to find Cassidy holding down the fort. Right. Sai is not home just now. But Cassidy lets them in, and Jesse defends his tourist-like tendencies. Yeah, they have an exchange here about the Statue of Liberty. She was something out there in the water with the sun going down behind her. Lovely arse on her, too. Right. Cassidy reveals that he has told Cy that Jesse's the one who wanted the information. Yeah, he says he owned up, and Jesse's jaw dropped. And Cassidy has to quickly explain that he didn't own up about everything. Right, not the word of God and the angel of the Lord stuff. Just the fact that Jesse's the one who wanted the information. Cassidy says because his faith has been flagging and he'd really like to see some kind of proof that God exists. And just on cue, Sai appears at the door. And then Sai and Cassidy join in in telling the story of how they first met at Woodstock when Sai was 16. Sai had just taken the brown acid when he saw Cassidy get shot in the face by a hell's angel. He said something about the Pope, so I pissed on his Harley. I always get Catholic on heroin. That's a great line. After drinking the biker dry, Cassidy took care of Sai for his whole bad trip, even with his face blown off. Yeah, and they became best mates. And this couple of pages, as a matter of fact, a lot of this issue by percentage is just conversation. Mm -hmm. But... Garth Ennis has such a way with writing conversation that it's a pleasure to read anyway. You know, some comic books, when they get too chatty, they kind of become boring and unreadable. Mm-hmm. But this just flows so well that you you hardly mind. Yeah, they're having a really entertaining, humorous conversation. But more than that, it's also injecting tension into the proceedings as they work their way around the subjects that they really want to talk about. 
Sai has found one recent divine manifestation, a blind man in the village who gets by with neither a dog nor a cane. Yeah, he's called the Big Man, and he is guided by the Lord. Sai agrees to take Jesse to see him tomorrow. And he, he asks, if you don't mind me saying, Jesse, for a man who has lost his faith, you seem to be getting by okay, you know? Jesse responds, I'm consumed by inner turmoil. And then Cassidy loses an enormous belch. He's got it, too. Then we go back to Detective John Toole, who has been called into his lieutenant's office. His lieutenant, Maureen Ryberg, wants to yell at him for leaking details on the Reaver Cleaver killings to Cy Coltrane. Yeah, and this is the page where we first get the, the realization that Cy knows way more about this case than he should. Right. Toole thinks correctly that Cy is tailing him and Bridges. Incidentally, Bridges is not here today. He's called in sick for some reason. Tool thinks that Bridges has been acting weird lately. He's not himself, he's acting twitchy, and Tool thinks that the last time he dropped him off at his apartment, Bridges was crying. Well, in any case, he doesn't get to dwell on it long, because it's at this point that he gets another phone call from the killer. It seems the killer has decided to give up, and he gives Tool an address and tells him to bring a big SWAT team. Yeah, he lives on West 45th. West 45th Street. That answers that. My bad. So, it's the next morning. Cy is driving Tulip and Jesse to the big man. And Tulip's got a hell of a hangover. Which is why when Jesse gets out, Tulip decides to stay in the car with Cy. Yeah, Cy is also staying because he says the big man doesn't like him. He wrote a story on the big man previously where he implied that he had someone giving him directions. Right. Without having met him, he wrote a story kind of debunking the big man. Right. Meanwhile, at Sai's place, Cassidy is cooking himself breakfast when he finds Sai's collection of Anal Rampage. Yeah, he's got the complete unbroken set of volumes 1 through 36. That's a lot of Anal Rampage. Big <laughs> Bert gets it just the way he demanded it. <laughs> yeah, he also finds something much more disturbing in Sai's refrigerator, but we don't get to see what that is just yet. We just get Cassidy's reaction. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Meanwhile, Sai and Tulip chat a bit about Cassidy... And what good friends they are. Tulip is surprised to learn that Cassidy has a girlfriend in San Francisco. The only one he's ever mentioned to Cy. Cassidy, he's been pretty constant in his affections. Cy says that Cassidy has more or less the same urges as anybody else. He's just more prone to act on them. He also says that he's never seen Cassidy... Cy knows that Cassidy's a vampire. And he says that he's never seen Cassidy feed on someone who didn't deserve it or wasn't already about to die. Right. Tulip says that she's thirsty, and Cy tells her to check the glove compartment while he checks the back seat. But when she looks away, Cy pulls out a big knife and pins her other hand to the dashboard. Yep. So I thought this was a pretty good issue. I really liked the... I thought it was quite masterful, the slow reveal that Cy is the bad guy. You know, if you're really paying attention, you can figure it out a couple of pages ahead of time. Yeah, we've got the red herring that Sai has been tailing the detectives, but once we find out what kind of information he's been putting in the newspaper, even that doesn't really account for how much he knows about the Reaver Cleaver. Yeah, and this issue ends with his, you know, creepy smiling face sticking the knife through Tulip's hand and pinning her to the dashboard. So... That brings us to Preacher number 7, NYPD Blue. And another creepy smiling face. The uh, Glenn Fabric cover for this issue has a 
grinning man in a gimp mask holding up an NYPD badge. Yeah. And did you think that NYPD blue was a pun? On, you know, the word blue meaning something perverted? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, in any case... <laughs> we're right back to Size Place, where we learn what Cassidy has found in the fridge. Severed human body parts. Blocking yeah. the beer. <laughs> yeah, you literally can't get to the beer, because there's a head, a couple of hands, and a foot in the way. No wonder he couldn't get his beer out the fucking fridge. And just at that moment, the SWAT team makes their presence known. They're yelling through the megaphone for the killer to come out, and Cassidy realizes he's been set up. As he tries to leave through the window, his face catches fire because the sun is up. Cassidy just has one question. For Jesus' sake, Cy, why? Meanwhile, Jesse arrives at the apartment where Cy has sent him and knocks. He asks for the big man. An effete man in the bathrobe answers the door, and it turns out there are three people here already. This guy thinks Jesse's the fourth. Love the collar, he says. Yeah, when he asks for the big man, this guy thinks he knows who he means and invites him to come in. Back in the car, Cy confesses to Tulip that he's the killer. Easiest exclusives I ever got, believe me. Yeah, he gives her quite a lengthy villain monologue here about how he did it and why and how he got into killing people when he accidentally ran over someone in a hit-and-run drunk driving accident and found himself laughing his ass off when he found out that he got away with it clean. He says, so I began seeing what else I could get away with, and it just got funnier each time. This is a really effective contrast for me with Jesse's philosophy of personal responsibility. The importance of taking responsibility and of having some overarching basis for morality, be it God or what have you, it's all underscored by having a villain whose sole motivation is that he enjoys suffering no consequences for his crimes. Yeah, I also think that Sai is just a really effective, psychologically disturbing villain. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's very capable of coming off friendly and likable, despite the fact that he is sadistic and utterly amoral. Yeah, and has no real comprehensible motive or trauma that brings him to this. He just does it because he can get away with it. And he explains to Tulip that the apartment is actually that of Polly Bridges. Cy knows there's an APB out on Jesse. It was the first thing he uncovered in his internet search. And he's setting Jesse up to be arrested by Polly, which will put him above suspicion in the Reaver Cleaver case. Yeah, and she's going to be too dead to contradict his story. And Cassidy is going to go down for the murders. Right, that's why he sent a SWAT team to his own house with Cassidy there. Finally, find out what's going on in Bridges' apartment. He's having rough sex with three men while handcuffed to a chair and verbally abusing himself. Yeah, so this is this is some really kinky stuff that he's into. Yeah. He sees Jesse and he says, Who the fuck's this? And one of the men starts to explain he's, to which Jesse finishes, Leaving! <laughs> yeah, but Bridges doesn't want him to get away clean, having seen what he's seen, so he decides he's going to fight Jesse. That's what they call a deep cover. Bridges calls Jesse a fucking oaky shit kicker. Jesse replies as he punches Bridges across the nose. That's Texas. That's Texas, you Yankee son of a bitch. But Bridges is one of the few people who is a better fighter than Jesse. Yeah, we end this page on him giving Jesse a pretty good wallop in the gut. 
Meanwhile, back at Sai's apartment, Cassidy is in quite a foxhole. Swap has got the order to move into the apartment. Yep, and Cassidy doesn't see a way out. So he just makes his way deeper into the basement. He breaks into a locked room and finds inside the victim we saw before. His face nailed to his head upside down. Comma. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. But Cassidy, I think very cleverly, figures out a way out of the situation by setting himself up to look like a victim. He grabs a bayonet, and when Tool, Ryberg, and another uniform enter the apartment, they find the victim tied to the chair. And Ryberg says, I don't know what the paramedics can do for this guy. Probably better off dead, like the other poor bastard. As they find Cassidy nailed to the wall by the bayonet stuck through his throat. Indeed. So, on the way back, when he should be feeling pretty good about his bust, or at least his commander thinks so, Tool goes into a panic and runs an intersection when he realizes that this means the killer knows where Bridges lives. Right, it's Sai's place, Sai's the killer, but Sai's been tailing them, so he knows where Bridges lives, and since Bridges is home but not answering his phone, maybe he's in danger. Tool tries to call for backup, but just then his car gets T-boned. And that's why the unluckiest cop in the world had to handle this one by himself. Meanwhile, back in the car, Tulip is struggling to get herself free of the knife that has pinned her hand to the dashboard. She sees the gun in the glove box and reaches for it. No, no fucking way! And she sticks the gun in her mouth and bites it to give her something to bite as she pulls the knife out. Is the no fucking way supposed to be on the idea that she would shoot herself? That's what I got from this page, yeah. It's like she briefly considers it, but very, very briefly. Or we're meant to think she considers it, but she's not thinking that at all. I think this is like Tulip's own personal version of the page where Spider-Man has to get out of the Master Planner's trap. (laughs) Oh, yeah! We had to lift all that machinery, right. Yeah, Uh, with a Herculean effort, Tulip manages to uh, pull the knife out of her hand, grab the gun, and go to save her boyfriend. Yeah, it's a nice sort of no fucking way she's giving up page as she reaches for the gun and then uses it to to grit her teeth and power through the pain. Yeah. Tulip is fucking kick-ass. <laughs> yeah. Upstairs, we find that Bridges has won his fight with Jesse. And yep. just then, Sai shows up to tell Bridges that he has apprehended this fugitive. Yeah, I think it's important to note here that Bridges isn't letting anybody leave because this motherfucker's seen enough to ruin me. Yeah, and uh, Sai comments on the fact that they both collect anal rampage. (laughs) Right. So Sai plans to help Bridges apprehend the dangerous criminal, Reverend Custer, and he puts the shotgun he's carrying in Jesse's mouth. Just then, Tool comes in and shouts, Freeze, pointing his gun. But when he sees his partner in his leather bondage outfit, he slips on the carpet. You don't want to know what it was I slipped on. There's a nice facial expression here. As you think that means lubricant? <laughs> Something gross. I'm not sure we need to know what it was. Okay, well, I take it to mean lubricant. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> it would be slippery. Uh, yeah, there's a really great facial expression here as the wind just goes completely out of Polly Bridges when his partner sees him in, in this getup. Yeah, and once again, he buries his face in his hands. Bridges does not have a healthy relationship with his sexuality. No, no, not at all. But 
Then the actual cavalry, which is to say a, a competent cavalry, comes through the door, and that is Tulip. Everybody's coming to this apartment. She takes a shot at Sai, and Sai takes a shot right back at her. But both of them miss. Jesse, uh, though, takes this opportunity to clock Sai, adding via the word of God, Fucking die! And we come to the next page where he is quite simply dead. Yeah, Tool and Bridges think that was one hell of a left hook, as Jesse apparently killed Sai in one punch. Right. Meanwhile, he is consumed with worry for Tulip, who has gone down, despite the fact that Sai apparently missed. Yeah, but just from blood loss and trauma from the hand, he discovers that's her only injury. Tool points his gun at Jesse and makes to arrest him. Jesse says, don't you point that fucking thing at me, and makes Tool hand it over. And then he takes Tool's business card and shoots Sai in the head with Tool's gun. You're a hero. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, he says, you're going to do a favor for me, like it or not, but it ain't my style to take something for nothing. So he sets it up to make Tool the hero cop who killed the serial killer. And carrying Tulip, he promises to call Tool in a couple days, heads out. Now, there's two things here that I think might qualify as continuity errors. Okay. One is that Psy is not the only one who can hear and understand when Jesse says fucking die. I think we've got to have an, an understanding that he can target with the word of God. If he intends it to go to only one person, it will. I mean, Tulip could have heard him when he ordered Root to go fuck himself, right? Yeah, a lot of people could have. So that's one thing. The other thing is, when he shoots Sai in the head, is he aware of what Sai has done? He is, because Tool has said, Polly, this guy's the killer, you should have seen his apartment. While Jesse was standing there. Okay. In any case, he's definitely aware that Sai tried to shoot a shotgun at Tulip, and that's probably enough for him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I guess it, it, it matters that he sets Tool up to look like he arrested the killer, or killed the killer, so he needs to know that he's the killer. But Tool said that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then Jesse carries Tulip out of there and leaves the two cops. Yeah, and Tool is pretty confused. Doesn't Polly hate gay people? Yeah, Polly's a really homophobic gay guy. Yeah, Bridges explains that he hates the scumbags that they're fighting out on the street so much that he wanted to hurt them, and then he started wanting to be hurt himself. Oh, Jesus, Johnny. I think I'm gay. <laughs> to which Tool replies, Are you sure you're not just fucked in the head? That was the first time in my life I used profanity. But it's not easy being a cop. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, Cassidy wakes up at the morgue. This uh, is a hilarious scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He gets the time of day and a smoke from the doctor on duty. Yeah, from the coroner. Oh, coroner. That's the word. Yeah, and as soon as it's confirmed that it's dark out, Cassidy climbs out of his body bag and walks out of the morgue. So, a couple days later, Tool and Jesse meet up in the park. Jesse is enjoying the best piece of pizza he ever tasted. Yeah, still loving New York. And we learn that at Jesse's request, Tool has called up FBI agent Dinnings and told him, we fished a two-week-old corpse out of the river, and it matches Jesse's dental records. Jesse is now dead on paper and no longer sought by the FBI. Tool's a little worried about the body count out west, but... Jesse says the only man he's ever killed was Coltrane. And here we get the first mention of a character who will be very important very soon, which is Jesse's grandmother. 
Tool tells him that his grandmother has been calling the FBI about him. Might be nice if you gave her a call, huh? But Jesse is making a face like it would be anything but nice if he ever saw his grandmother again. <laughs> Indeed. Later, at a bar, Jesse and Cassidy are having a conversation about how Cassidy is not taking Sai's betrayal very well. No, he's, he's still really pissed that Sai set him up to be killed. I mean, you think you've got a good friend, right? Someone you can rely on, and they're always going to be there for you. And they get right in here, he says, pointing to his heart. But that's all right, because you think you've got them the same way. Then it turns out they're just another fucker. Jesse replies, what the hell, Cass? Can't all be fuckers, can they? Suppose not. We find out that Tulip is in the hospital, and to make up for introducing them to Cy, Cassidy has paid her medical bills. Yeah, and at this point, Cassidy and Jesse are going to be going their separate ways for a while. Cassidy needs to head out west, while Jesse and Tulip need to head back to Texas. Yeah, but Cassidy gives Jesse his phone number in San Francisco, and as he walks away, he says to himself, Nah, can't all be fuckers. We get a sort of a postscript here where we see what has become of Tool and Bridges. Tool made sergeant and then lieutenant for taking down the Reaper Cleaver. The next year, he lost both arms in a horrific glazing accident. Yeah, that's some dark humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's some gallows humor. Bridges left the force but continued to keep in touch with his former partner. We see Bridges in a gimp mask on the phone. And Cassidy went west, but not before stopping for a snack in his favorite Brooklyn neighborhood. As we see him surrounded by thugs with uh, knives and bats. Yeah. Of the Reverend Jesse Custer and Miss Tulip O'Hare, there has so far been no news. And the issue ends on a full-page panel of Jesse and Tulip in a red convertible entering Texas. There are ten million stories in the Naked City. Not all of them have a moral. Yeah. So, what did you think about that story arc? Well, I'm going to put down a footnote right here, but then I'm going to say that I thought it was a pretty good story. It was nice to see the city through Jesse's eyes, and it was nice to have him contrasted with a villain who really effectively emphasizes the importance of Jesse's personal philosophy and the things that make him a good guy. Yeah, I, I thought it was an effective story, too. I, it might be my least favorite story arc in all of Preacher. Okay. Just because the villain disturbs me so much. Mm, okay. But, you know, Preacher is a masterpiece, and even its worst story arc is generally a pretty good read. The but, Unluckiest Cop in the World is a pretty fun concept. I honestly could have done a couple issues of Detective Tool, even if he hadn't run into Jesse, although he probably wouldn't have been able to handle anything on his own. <laughs> Yeah, it's again, it's it's really dark humor with some unfortunate implications, the way he's continually set up as the butt of jokes and the butt of misfortune, you know? And the the story doesn't have a lot of mercy on him. He loses you know, both arms in a glazing accident. Yeah, the kind of hyper-masculinity that we see leveraged against Tool for his ineffectiveness as a cop, though is also mercilessly deconstructed when we learn what we learn about Polly Bridges. Yeah, that's true. So should and, we, and that's where I have to go back to my footnote. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about the, the homophobia on display here. So there are probably more important story arcs to talk about this with relation to, the San Francisco story arc that we're coming up to in a couple of, in a couple of episodes. But I don't want to give the impression that I'm not thinking about it now, so I think we have to mention it. 
is Preacher homophobic? Yeah, it's Preacher is edgy in a 90s kind of way. Yeah. Right? Which means that there's there's definitely a little bit of homophobia mixed in with the humor. I, I think that I don't think that they're trying to tell us with this story arc that being gay is bad. Mm-hmm. You know? But they are sort of like having a prurient chuckle at the idea of all this kinky gay sex. Yeah, I think that sums it up quite well. I think, I think, I mean, I don't know what the author's opinion of homosexuality is, but I think that he would say this story is intended to be offensive. It's intended to be offensive to the mothers of teenage boys who read Preacher. <laughs> um, and I, I think the offense to gay people is sort of incidental. It's unconsidered. I would call it blithe. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. You you could argue that the that the joke on Polly Bridges is not that he's gay so much as that he's a closeted homophobic yes. gay guy. Yeah, and, and making him the most extreme example of weird gay sex that they could come up with just emphasizes that joke, just exaggerates that joke. Yeah, I think it's good that he's into, you know, super kinky and degrading stuff. So the joke isn't just, like, ha-ha homosexuality. Yeah, he's not shown to have, like, a healthy, loving relationship with another man. Right. He doesn't have a healthy relationship at all. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a healthy relationship with himself, much less with anyone else. And I do think it's it, it, it deconstructs... I like that it takes the piss out of his incredible offensiveness. Right, yes. This is this is initially portrayed as, like, you know, making him a great cop. <laughs> and it is ultimately revealed to be his, his own, like, self-loathing complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I do think there gets to be a point where you don't see the healthy examples. And especially later on, we're going to have sort of a contrast with healthier heterosexual relationships. I, I think that the, the creature definitely has a habit of holding up homosexual sex as part of a black comedy tableau of depravity. And that's not the most homophobic thing out there, but it's still pretty uncomfortable to me. No, I agree. Yeah, it, it's it's somewhat homophobic just in the fact that whenever gay characters come up, they're presented as the butt of jokes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not saying that being gay is bad, but they are definitely saying that alternative sexualities, whether it be gay sex or kinky sex, are... Laughable, at least. Right. Are part of the, the you know, dark, comedic underbelly of the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So... It's a really compelling, really well-written series with fascinating characterization, and I'm really interested to see more of it, but I I am consistently uncomfortable with this element in this story and moving on into San Francisco. Well, and I think that this storyline in general is just, like, so lurid. Oh, yeah, Um, absolutely. You know, the the guy cutting people's faces off and and other body parts and, and stuff like that. You know, the gore and the sadism are also really uncomfortable as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And... And the character is unapologetic and purposeless. Sai is in his, in his, you know, horrific murders and 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 torture and mutilation of people. 
and in a way that sets up Ennis and Dylan to go on to horror and depravity that have a purpose, that have a point to make. Right. Well, now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic. I am surprised. I'm <laughs> sorry, I really am. <laughs> this week, Sean's going to be taking a look at Clean Room Number 1, which came out from Vertigo Comics in 2015. All right. Okay, that was Clean Room Number 1, written by Gail Simone, art and colors by John Davis Hunt. Yeah, so what did you think of it? Well, that was weird. There were a lot of parts that I had difficulty following. Well, mainly the beginning, but... Yeah, it opens on a little scene which is really difficult to understand. I think because different people are perceiving it in different ways. Yeah, okay, so I guess like either hallucinations or some kind of enhanced perception are, are a key plot point to this series. Yeah, but basically there's a guy in a truck who hits a little girl and her family in their car. I, either deliberately or recklessly. Yeah, I got the impression that it was on purpose. And for some reason, the, the little girl seems to perceive the, the truck driver as a monster. Yeah, like a, like a purple arm, but plated in the plated in the steel plate of the car. Yeah, that, that was a cool, pretty cool looking image. Yeah. But, okay, so she was severely injured, and, and then it seems like he went back to hit her again, and then a bunch of people pulled him out of his car and beat him to death. Right. And she, I think, is Astrid? Um, I'm not sure. I thought she was just another victim. Oh, okay, okay. That's just the cold open. That's just, whoa, shit's happening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So then we have this reporter, Chloe, who her fiancé killed himself, and she's also been seeing some of the weird shit, apparently as a result of exposure to Astrid Mueller's books. Right, and so she... Obviously to see monsters. So it's basically an Eldritch Horror story combined with a Scientology documentary. (laughs) Well, so Chloe is is obsessed with finding Astrid Mueller and and making her answer for what she's done. Although she's she's writing the king in yellow. (laughs) Which she's not really quite able to say what Astrid has done, but... Right. But yeah, and we are to presume the plot thickens. So, were you interested by this book? Not really. Uh, and then at the end, Astrid shows up accompanied by the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, she makes an, she makes a superhero entrance in the last page. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm being unduly harsh. The art had kind of a Michael Turner style to it, and it was very comic booky compared to a lot of the Vertigo comics that I've read. It wasn't making an effort to be expressionistic or, or, or hyper-realistic. It was very comic book art. You know, it's interesting that you say that. The reason that I bought Clean Room number one Mm -hmm. was because the art was by John Davis Hunt. And he is currently the writer of the Wildcats reboot, or the the Wildstorm reboot. Okay. Called The Wildstorm. Okay. The art of which is fantastic. Okay. The panel that you sent me from that had atrocious dialogue. 
<laughs> well, it's written by Warren Ellis. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, but that bit was a little... little Maybe he little had to work around some things. I, I think that, that bit was being a little bit self-consciously silly. Yeah, that's fair. We're talking about the panel in The Wild Storm where they say it's a an unauthorized covert action team, a wildcat... <laughs> But, I mean, that's what Wildcats, that's what Wildcat means in the Wildstorm universe. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the comic book was about. Yeah, like, that's, 1992, Sean. What else, what is, what is he going to do? I mean, that's what, that's what Wildstorm is. <laughs> okay, okay. That's what Wildcats are. <laughs> anyway, anyway, but yeah. So, so, I don't know, it, it felt, it felt very designed compared to, well, I mean, especially the superhero entrance at the end, where she's accompanied by five people, and one of them is, like, ridiculously tall, and then another one has purple hair, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that John Davis Hunt has a good way of kind of, like, he can do superhero-looking characters that look grounded in a real-world kind of way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think that it was bad art. It just struck me how how comic book it was. I, I thought he did a good job with faces. There was one face when the, the, the little girl's brother is being mean to her that made me laugh out loud. And he, he does a generally good... distinctive. It reminded me of uh, Lock and Key as well. Lock and Key, who draws that? I wish I could remember that. It's written by Stephen King's son, right? Well, I don't know. Oh, now I want to check both of those facts. Well, in any <laughs> case, in any case, I think that John Davis Hunt does a pretty good job of drawing of drawing monsters and and horrific things as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's true. We did a good job on, on both or all three of the monsters that we saw on the issue. Yeah, and he can draw he can draw gore, which is apparently important for a Vertigo comic. <laughs> yeah. I will admit, though, I, I think I'm more or less with you. I don't know if I'm going to be buying any more clean room. I I found it difficult to follow and not super fascinating. The idea of, like, I don't know, eldritch evil texts that... I'm guessing by the end what we're going to find out is that... And this is not a spoiler, because I just read one issue. I don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. I'm guessing that we're going to find out not too far in that Astrid is not a bad guy, but her book does enhance perception in such a way that... Or, or, or her process does enhance perception in such a way that people can see monsters. And the monsters are real, and something has to be done about them, and that's why she's doing what she's doing. That is my guess. Yeah. But I, I don't know if I'm going to read any more Clean Room. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really hooked by it. The idea of, like, eldritch works of art is the one that's interesting to me, and I've seen it before, and it's it's a cool idea, if if an established one. Yeah, I mean, if you like Lovecraftian stuff, there's plenty of Lovecraftian stuff that already exists. Mm-hmm. I also think that, as we've discussed before with a couple of, of these comics that we've covered in this segment, maybe Clean Room number one isn't long enough to cover the subject completely you know it's not long enough to really give us a proper introduction and let us decide if we want to buy issue number two right the thing that maybe i find the hardest about embracing it at this point is that we have so little idea whether our perspective is being impaired by chloe's perspective or whether there's something really to be seen she you know has either psychotic breaks or moments of perception where she sees monsters twice in the issue, in addition to the thing that happens in the cold open. And and I wish we had a little more of a handle on where that was going. All right. Well, this 
episode, we covered Preacher numbers 5 through 7 and Clean Room number 1. What are we coming back for next week? Join us next week as we wrap up Preludes and Nocturnes, meet another of the Endless, and hear the sound of her wings in Sandman number 8. All right. Hope we'll see you there. If you like our show, please go to vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got more episodes plus show notes and links for every episode. You can also hit us up on at vertigize on Twitter or vertigize at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.